Peace be with you. And also with you. Well, I've had the joy over the last 10 years to uh, perform quite a few weddings. And I can always tell when a couple has kind of watched too many romantic comedies, right? Uh, I normally, the uh, first way I can tell is I normally get an email or a correspondence from them and say, hey, we want to write our own vows. And I'm like, great, no, no problem with that. But then the second way I know is when I receive the vows. The vows are normally so like extravagant and so uh, amazing that I'm like, yeah, y'all been watching too much TV, all right? Uh, here's just an example of, of one. This is hyperbola, but it'll say something like this. The husband will say to the wife, you know, I just can't wait to marry you, to be your boo forever. Every morning, I'm going to wake up and make you a fresh pot of coffee. And after that pot of coffee, I'm going to hand you your lunch that I made for you the night before. And then when you're at work, I'm going to text you every day to reaffirm our love. And when you come home, there's going to be hot water just running in the bathroom so that you can just relax. And then before you go to sleep, I'm going to rub your feet and give you a kiss goodnight. I'm like, whoa, buddy. And I normally write them back and say, like, let me just point you to the traditional vows because what you're planning to do, I guarantee you, it won't last a full week, right? And then I just point them back to the traditional vows, the historic vows, which I prefer at weddings, which simply says, I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to death do us part. And the reason I prefer that is because that's just the everyday love. That's a declaration that I'm going to stick it out with you in the mundane, in the good, and the bad. And the reason that excites me is because those vows are a picture of biblical faithfulness. Biblical faithfulness isn't an attractive term that we like to use. Faithfulness doesn't get us that excited, but faithfulness is a, a lifestyle of one who is trustworthy and dependable. To be faithful means to be reliable. It is simply to be present through thick and thin. It's to show up. In Galatians chapter 5, the apostle Paul writes, a passage in verses 22 through 24, what we call the fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence that the Spirit is at work in a believer. And he gives us this in Galatians chapter 5. The evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, he says, is this. It's joy, it's peace, it's forbearance, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness. And today we're going to continue our series by talking about, about faithfulness, what it looks like in the life of a believer uh, to cultivate uh, uh, this element of the fruit of the Spirit, which simply means to be trustworthy and dependable. Faithfulness is not something that you cultivate overnight. Like all the other fruits, it's something that takes a lifetime to cultivate, but the more and more we abide in Christ, the more and more it should be evident to people around us. And we all desire to be faithful 
uh, in many ways. And we all desire to, to have people in our lives that's faithful because an unfaithful friend, an unfaithful spouse, an unfaithful community group member, an unfaithful church member, it impacts us. It affects us. In fact, we read in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25 and 19, the proverb says this, putting confidence in an unreliable person in times of trouble is like chewing with a broken tooth or walking on a lame foot. An unfaithful person causes pain in our own lives. And some of you know that pain. That's an all too real pain. Perhaps you had a parent that was unfaithful, a parent that did not show up in your life, or a friend, a loved one. You know the pain that that causes. But as Christians, God uh, transfers his DNA to us. As we abide in him, John 15, he transfers his DNA to us. He, he gives us uh, uh, elements of, of him, evidences of him. And part of that is, is that as Christians, as believers, that we become more and more faithful. And the more and more faithful we become, the more and more the world looks at us and they say, how is it that you're so reliable? How is it that you're so dependable? How is it when, you're, when you don't come through, you feel sincere brokenness over it? And then we can point to God and say it's because God is faithful. And he's teaching me to be faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 4, Moses writes this of the Lord. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The Lord is a rock. And as Christians, he has called us to be little rocks. God is a, a load-bearing wall. And he has called us to be load-bearing walls for our family, for our friends, for our church. That's what Paul talks about, bear one another's burdens. We all are called to, to bear loads. Though we will do it imperfectly and we won't do it like he does it, God calls us as his children to grow in a way in which we can do that. So the question is then, how? How do we cultivate this element of the spirit? How do we grow in faithfulness? And today... That's what I'm going to seek to answer by looking at this characteristic in the life of Jesus. Stand to your feet and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, familiar passage. And while you turn there or look to the screen, I just want to praise God for uh, the faithful men and women of this church who serve in a variety of ways week in and week out. And also specifically today, I want to thank God for the faithful pastors that the Lord has given Sojourn Community Church. Um, on the way, my wife and I, we've been traveling for the last few weeks, and uh, we've gotten to listen to our podcast and hear the sermons of uh, those who, who preached, right, the last five weeks. Pastor Timothy Paul Jones, Pastor Robert Chong, uh, Pastor Justin, Pastor Cliff, Pastor James, and they have, uh, as always, proven themselves to be faithful and rightly dividing the word of truth, and I pray that you all are thankful um, as I am for them. The precious word of God reads this way. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. And returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, I thank you that you are so faithful and so wonderful. You are so good to us, even when we are faithless. I thank you, Father God, that you are good to me, that you um, allow me to serve uh, you and your people in this way, uh, though I uh, am far from flawless. And I thank you for these, your people who are listening today, whom you have given grace to be here today, to know you and to serve you, that you uh, continue to allow them to be uh, uh, held up by your grace, to be faithful and to be present here now. But would you do a work through this sermon? Would you allow me to get out of my mind and allow me to uh, wear the mind of Christ? Would you uh, hide me behind the cross and allow me to preach clearly uh, and passionately for your name's sake and glory? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So as we think and, and talk about what it means to be, to be faithful, uh, we want to realize that being faithful is, is grounded, it is rooted uh, in us first having faith. We can't be faithful without faith. And our faith is, is not in and of ourselves and our ability to be faithful. Our faith is in the one who is always faithful, the one who is a rock. But there's two main reasons why we uh, fail to be faithful. The first is that we are sinners, Uh, The Bible tells us that all of us are born in sin, Psalm 51, and shaped by our iniquity. As a result of uh, Adam's sin, uh, we have come under that that Adamic effect. We are sinners. We are born sinners. Uh, We sin when we don't want to sin. Uh, And even for Christians, those who have come under uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, those who have been given a heart of flesh, Uh, and whose heart of stone has been turned into a heart of flesh through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, we still sin. We fall short. And as a result, we are are faithless, and we don't show up when people need us. And we find ways to abdicate our responsibility, to work around our responsibility, and we hold on to excuses. But not only that, but we're also sufferers. I fail to, to be faithful, not just because uh, I, I am naturally a, a sinner, even as a believer, the old man, the flesh, the carnal nature hadn't 
moved out, moved over. Though I'm not a slave to sin, I still sin, but I'm also a sufferer. People sin against me, and that discourages me. That hinders me from desiring to be faithful. Uh, People sin against you, and, and you suffer, and that may hinder you from being faithful, from loving your enemies and and treating them the way Jesus would treat you. We suffer. Natural disasters happen. Unexpected things come up. Things break down. Uh, Things take their toll on us, and, and that weight begins to weigh on us, and as a result of that weight, sometimes we check out. Sometimes we don't show up for others. Sometimes we know God is calling us to a specific obedience, and rather than obey, we do what we want to do. And we all have triggers to unfaithfulness. All of us have one, one in common. It's a trigger that I call HALT, H-A-L-T. I think all of us are tempted to be unfaithful when these four things happen. Number one, when we're hungry, right? On a practical level, when we're hungry, we get angry, don't we? That's the A. <laughs> we become hangry. <laughs> All right, my wife and I, we've been traveling lately, and, and on a road trip that we were making, I, I had the bright idea to just kind of push through a, a little more uh, while everyone was hungry and had to go to the bathroom. That's not a good idea, right? Everybody get hangry, and all of a sudden, we're not faithful no more. We're mad at each other, getting on each other's nerves, right? But also, we are triggered and tempted to not be faithful when we're lonely. And when we're tired, not only that, some of us, we're triggered to be unfaithful when we're afraid. Fear can make us unfaithful. When we're afraid, rather than trust the Spirit and depend on the Lord, we can can depend on ourselves and try to make things happen in our own strength. Can I get an amen? Or we can play it safe. Jesus tells a parable, the parable we call the parable of the the talents. A parable is a, is a small story with big truth. And he talks about the, the servant who, instead of investing his talent, he hid his talent. And the whole point of the story is that the servant was afraid of losing what his master gave, and rather than, than make an appropriate risk for God, for the kingdom, use his gifts for the kingdom, he buried it. And that's some of us. Sometimes we're not faithful because we're afraid of failure. We're afraid of not being accepted by others. We're afraid of what other people will think if we try and don't succeed. So we go back to our normal routine and and, and habits and and slothfulness and apathy. Sometimes we're faithless and we're not faithful. We don't show up to the things that God has called us to show up to because we feel unappreciated or underappreciate. Well, Pastor Jamal, you don't understand. I'm a, I'm a good spouse. I, I cook, I, I clean, I, I clean up poop and throw up. I, I'm, I'm good to my family, but, but I'm not appreciated. No one congratulates me. No one thanks me. It's a thankless job. So after a while, what we do is we begin to treat people how we think they deserve to be treated. Or maybe that's you at work. You feel underappreciated. You feel undervalued. So rather than doing what Colossians tells us to work as unto the Lord, we cut corners and do bare minimum, just enough to get a paycheck. 
we all have triggers of unfaithfulness. But what's amazing to me is that Jesus had triggers to be unfaithful throughout his life. And he was faithful in every way. For 33 years, our Savior, though he was tempted as we with sin, to sin, and though he suffered immensely, he was faithful from the beginning of his life to the very end of his life. The beginning of his life, we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and verses 52, that Jesus, the Bible says, he grew in favor with God and with man. The word grew in the Greek, um, it, it, it connotes a struggle. It means that, 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 it literally means he beat his way forward. Jesus was tempted, the writer of Hebrew says, just as we are, from a young age, he struggled just as we do. Why? Because he is, yes, fully God, but he's also fully man. It's what we call the hypostatic union, a big word, which simply means that Jesus, the one person, had two natures. He was fully God, and yet he was fully man intermingled. It's a beautiful mystery. But even as a child, he struggled. He had real temptations. He had uh, 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 real trials that that tested his obedience. In Luke chapter 4, we see that Jesus is, is now grown 18 years of silence. From the time he was 12 to the time he's 30, for 18 years, we don't know what happened. All we know is he was faithful and without sin. And I love that he, that those are the silent years of Jesus, that we don't know what was happening then. It's almost as if God is saying there was nothing really extravagant, not, not a lot to report on. He was just faithful. And that's most of our life. Most of our life is not extravagant things to, to report on. But the question is, will we be faithful? Will we beat our way forward? Will we grow? And then we get to this text. It's the end of his life, end of his ministry. Jesus is with his disciples in the garden. And the Bible says that he separates them into two groups. In verse 32, he tells them to sit here while he prays. He tells this to his first group of disciples. And then he takes his inner circle with him. And he tells them to stay here. He goes a little farther with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And then we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see spiritual warfare. He is in a situation where he could not be faithful. I love what the text says, verse 34. He says this to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says, stay here and keep watch. He said, I'm hurting, and I'm hurting deeply. According to Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus begins to pray to the point that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. This is an intense scene. Why is it such an intense scene? I think it's three reasons. One is Jesus is suffering physically. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He's been dropping clues throughout the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels. He's telling them, I'm about to die. And he knows that this death is about to be a brutal death. This death is about to be one of the most brutal deaths in all of history. It's going to be death 
through the cross. Roman crucifixion was no joke. He knows what's coming. He knows that once he's taken captive, he'll be punched in his face. He knows that they will probably take a thorn of crowns and press it upon his head. He, he knows that he's going to be whipped, 39 lashes with a catanine whip, a whip that had bones at the end of it to tear off his flesh. He, he knows that he is going to have nails put in his palms. Son of a carpenter will be nailed with the very tools that he watched his father use growing up to a cross. He, he knows that he will be left for dead. But second, psychologically he's suffering. It's one thing to know that you're going to suffer physically, but psychologically I think it, it was probably even more worse than the physical pain. Jesus has been sinless for all eternity, been in perfect communion with God the Father and and the Holy Spirit. And now he knows that your sin and my sin will be placed upon his shoulder and that there will be an interruption with this divine community as God the Father's wrath for the very first time in eternity's past will be placed upon his shoulders. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it like this. God made him who had no sin for us, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew that he was going to experience God's wrath poured out on him. All the wrath that all of God's people deserve will be poured out on him. But, but socially, Jesus is suffering. Jesus' best friends are going to sleep through his suffering. When he needs the most, they won't be there. One of Jesus' closest friends has just left a meal to go and betray him for a few pieces of silver. But yet, he's faithful. I think we see the faithfulness of Jesus in this text in two ways, in two ways that should help us cultivate faithfulness. One, as we see, even though Jesus' disciples betray him, and he knows that they're going to betray him, right before this text, he tells Peter, he says to Peter, right before this, the text we read, he comes to Peter and he says, listen, Peter, this is what's about to happen, all right? Before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me three times. Y'all know what Peter said? Peter went wild, buck wild. It was like, yo, these guys may betray you, but I'll never betray you. The whole time, Jesus knew that he would. But Jesus, though he knows his disciples are going to betray him, though he knows they're going to be faithless, listen to this, he still invited them in to his suffering. And part of the problem that I see sometimes with the body of Christ, is we don't want to invite people in to our suffering. Jesus is probably laid out on the floor of Gethsemane. He is crying. He is at his most vulnerable state, and he invites grown men to see him in that state. Why? It's because Jesus knows the importance of community. 
And the reason why some of us are suffering heavier than we need to suffer is because we, we have this long range, uh, kind of uh, a solo uh, uh, mindset. We don't want to let people in. And I know for guys, I, I, it just seems hard for guys to, to let other guys in. Like, I'm a grown man. Ain't nobody about to see me in the fetal position, crying and upset because something ain't going my way. I'm a grown man. Well, listen, that's called cultural manliness, what you're doing. Jesus is the epitome of a real man. And Jesus was willing to be vulnerable with other men. Jesus is the epitome of manhood. And he had some men around him that he could allow them to see him in his greatest success, the Mount of Transfiguration, as well as in his hardest and darkest hour. And so many people desert the Lord or the church, I'll say that, because we know those who are, are truly in the Father's hand will will ultimately remain. Well, so many people desert the church because they are not opening themselves up to true, mature community. And maybe it's because of failure of, of that community failing you. Maybe you've been hurt, or maybe you see other people's pain from relationships, and, and you're trying to keep people at an arm's length. And I just want to let you know that people will fail you. People will hurt you. People will be faithless. And here's the other part of that. You will be faithless to other people. You will fail to show up to other people. But the Bible tells us that we're better off in community with others than alone. A three-chord, uh, 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 a three-strand cord is not easily broken. James 5.20 puts it this way. It says, Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Based off Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, I can say that the Bible teaches not only us to confess our sins, but also our struggles, our suffering to invite other people into how we're suffering so that they would pray for us. Now, Simon, Peter, and the disciples, Jesus is inviting them to pray with him, but they're not going to pray with him. They're going to fail. But listen, Jesus still invited them in to pray with him. And I'm sure on this side of the resurrection, they wish that they had taken time to pray. Right before... This text, I said, Jesus talks to Peter, and Peter uh, denies that he's going to betray Jesus. Jesus comes to Peter three times in this passage, and each time Peter sleep. I can just see the scene. Jesus gets up and prays. He's like, let me go check on my homeboys, make sure that they're praying. And every time, he's like, Peter, Simon, get up. Get up. And what he said, tell him, he says, wake up and pray, lest you be tempted. See, what Jesus knew, and he just told Peter, he says, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. But what does he tell Peter? But I have prayed for you. Prayer is powerful. 
Peter doesn't pray. Why does Peter pray? Does he not pray because he's evil or something's wrong with him? No. I think that he's just genuinely tired. It's been a long week. Long day. I mean, this is the same week that Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. Two of the disciples have to go to town to get him a donkey. This is the same week that Jesus comes into the temple and overthrows tables. And I'm sure the disciples is right there with them trying to defend and protect them. I mean, it's been a long day. Jesus has been preaching to them all day. Half the stuff, they didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus talks about his second coming. They're like, what are you talking about? The Son of Man will come like a thief in the night. What? Some of you will run to my, what are you talking about? They've been trying to stay with him. He just had a long discourse about love, about abiding in him like a, a branch in a, bond, in a vine. They're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And after this long day and a long meal, you want me to, you want me to pray. But we need mature community. And Jesus, for them, was mature community in that he was not afraid to call out in them what he saw. He saw a weakness there, and he called it out. He called it out. He said, y'all not praying, and it's going to impact you. In the same way, God has called you to be mature community to others so that they would be faithful. But in order to be the community of God to other people, and in order to remain faithful, we've got to commune with God. And that's the second thing we see here is mature communion. Because we are united with Christ, we're also called to commune. Look at the passage. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus goes to this community of disciples, invites them in to see him suffer. They they don't step up to the plate. They're tired. They sleep through it. He says, listen, the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? So what does Jesus do? He continues to press, but he presses in with a different community, and that is the community of the Father and the community of the Spirit. Sometimes people are going to fail you. Sometimes your community group leaders won't be there for you. Your accountability partners won't show up. Sometimes the church is going to fail you, and when you think the church should be present, the church is going to be sleeping. But that is no excuse for you or for me to not be faithful. Why? Because we have the ultimate community on our side, and that's God himself. And that's what Jesus runs to. He he runs to community. He runs to the Father. Verse 36, he cries out, Abba, Father. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place that was was dark and that was hard, where you were tempted, where you were falling apart, and you can't get out of a, a lot of words, but the only thing you can get out is daddy, father? That's what Jesus is. Jesus is having his Romans 8 experience, where the Bible says that sometimes we get in the situation 
where the Spirit makes intercessions for us. The Spirit groans, Abba, Father, on our behalf. Have you ever been there? That's biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity, the Bible's view of Christianity shows us that that it is common in the Christian life to be brought to our knees by our circumstances. That it is common in a Christian life to be brought to a place where only God can help and only God understands. The Christian life is, is hard. Living without Christ, I believe, is even harder because we don't have the Holy Spirit and God the Father to to relieve us. But the Christian life is hard because not only do we have the flesh working against us, not only do we have the world tempting us, but we have a real enemy named Satan who's trying to take us out. And the way in which we remain faithful is not by fighting in our own strength. Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they are powerful through the pulling down of stronghold. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of of wickedness and the darkness of this world. He says, the battle that you're fighting is not a physical battle. It's not a battle against people. The battle that you're fighting is a spiritual battle. And the only way we win a spiritual battle is if we're walking in a spiritual realm. And the only way we walk in a spiritual realm is if we set our eyes on the things that are above, if if we root ourselves in the Lord. And rooting ourselves in the Lord doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy and peachy keen. But it does mean that, that the Lord is going to do what he said he's going to do, that the Lord is going to be faithful. That's what happens in this passage. Jesus cries out. He surrenders. He says, he's honest with his father. Look, Lord, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, take it. What's the cup? It's an Old Testament reference. The prophets talk about the cup. The cup is God's wrath. If there's any way you can can work out this salvation thing for your people without me having to be crushed by your wrath, work it out. Then the Spirit gives them strength. The Spirit kicks in. He says, oh, Lord, but not my will, but, but your will. That's faithful. Faithfulness is saying, Father, I'm I'm lonely. I'm not where I think I should be in life. This is not the way I dreamed my life going. But Father, if you keep me right here, if, if if nothing else changes, not my will, but your will. Faithfulness is saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you even when I can't trace you. Faithfulness is you getting on your knees and your face As the psalmist says, as a deer pants for the water stream, so my soul longs and pants for you. That's what Jesus is doing. He is panting towards the water streams. He is going towards that fresh and living water that is found with communion with the Father and the Spirit like a a, a thirsty deer in the wilderness. And that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not roses. Don't let Instagram fool you. Don't let Facebook fool you. Don't let Twitter fool you. Those are just snapshots of everyone's best moments. The real life, I'm talking about everyday life, is a battle for everybody. Everybody's got thorns. Everybody's got temptation. Everybody's like Jacob and 
Everybody walks with a limp. If, if Jesus had a thorn, if Jesus had temptations, if Jesus had some, some, some things that he had to, to work out and, and work through in a garden, we are as well. But here's, here's what makes me shout. Here's what keeps me going. And here's probably what keeps you going. Is that you know at the end of the day, the Father's got you. In Luke's gospel, we see that the Holy Spirit, that the Bible says that angels came and ministered to Jesus. The angels came and ministered to him. His friends have betrayed him. He's alone. He's about to be crushed. And angels came to minister to him. Now, how that looks and what that looks like, I'm not 100% sure. But what I do know is Jesus walked out of the garden different than he walked in. Verse 41 says, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Listen to this. Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes the betrayer. Jesus walked into the garden weak and discouraged. He walks out of the garden kind of valently and victoriously. He's saying, get up. It's time to go. And that's what the Bible promises us. Philippians chapter 4 promises us just do not be anxious for anything, but in prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the God of all peace will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Oh, that we would commune with the Father more when our world is turning upside down so that we can find that supernatural strength, that crazy strength, that ridiculous strength, that strength that make your neighbors say, I know what you're going through, but yet you still got a smile on your face. That strength that makes family members say, how in the world are you still standing? If I was in your situation, I would have lost my mind. That strength that makes a, a friend say, man, man, why, why are you still doing this, this Jesus thing? I don't, I don't understand. I would have gave up a long time ago. It seems like you got it rougher than me, and I don't even follow Jesus. But you can still say, yeah, but it is well with my soul. I'm talking about that supernatural strength. And that strength isn't found in us making a declaration on paper that I'm going to be more faithful. I'm going to be a better disciple, a better witness, a better servant. I'm going to be a more faithful giver. That's not where faithfulness is found. That strength is found by us getting on our face and talking to the Father. And like my grandmother used to say, he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. You know what I'm talking about, sister. He may not come when you want him. Why? Because there may still be some pruning, some breaking that he needs to do. There may need to still be some, some revelation that he needs to, to give you about his character. There, there may need to be some stuff that you're going through. Some of the stuff you're going through, you're not going through for you. You're going through for somebody else. What Jesus was going through wasn't just for him. What Jesus was going through was for us. And sometimes we go through stuff 
so that God can be glorified through our stuff. And what keeps us going is not the fact that we will receive glory, but it's that we have a heavenly father who loves us and who's the perfect planner who will come through for us and who will will be done. And every Sunday when we gather, we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us by taking bread and wine. I think this is the biggest piece of communion bread I've ever held. Amen. (laughs) I picked it up. All right. But may this remind us of his faithfulness, amen, all the more. (laughs) He is more than enough. He is the bread of life, amen. (laughs) And we break it because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, eat. He took a cup. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of this cup, dear Christian, may you be reminded of the new covenant that we have in Christ. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. Um, We take this as Christians to remind us of God's faithfulness towards us, and it also reminds us that one day uh, we'll take this meal in the presence of Jesus. And on that day, Jesus is going to say words to us all that we probably won't believe. He's going to say to us, faithful servant, well done. And we'll be tempted to look back at our life in light of his majesty, in light of his beauty, and say, Lord, I'm not faithful. You're faithful. But the point is that when we're in Christ, his faithfulness becomes our faithfulness. And every week we take this meal to remind ourselves that there's no condemnation in him, that when we are faithless, when we don't show up, he shows up. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to ask you not to partake in this meal, but rather I plead with you to take Jesus. People will fail you. You will fail other people. But there is one whose name is Jesus who will never fail you. It's impossible for him to fail. Now, there's going to be times if you take Christ where you think that he's failing you, but he's not failing even in our darkest moments, our setbacks in Christ are really set-ups. And I want to plead with you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Just a second, we're going to have some people come to give us communion. Those of you in the front half of the room, come to the front. The back half of the room, you go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. This meal is only for those who've placed their faith in Christ. Those who haven't, uh, my prayer is that you would take Christ. Let's pray.